Welcome to Naturally Well, a podcast to help you live a healthier and happier life with a Nordic twist. I'm your host, Kate Turner, registered dietitian, personal trainer, Nordic Naturals nutrition specialist, and owner of Live Well with Kate. Today, we're talking to Jenny Best, who is the founder of Solid Starts, the world's leading platform for introducing solid food to babies. Solid Starts is a team of pediatricians, feeding therapists, dietitians, and swallowing specialists, and is the world's first comprehensive platform for starting solids. Solid Starts features the first food database, a free food database and app for babies that will ultimately house every edible ingredient in the world, complete with step-by-step instructions and how-to videos for introducing real food to babies. The platform serves more than 2 million people from 175 countries, offering complimentary resources to those in need. As for Jenny, she's a mom of three, a baby-led weaning expert, and a food and farming enthusiast on a mission to make it easier for parents to introduce real food to their babies. Her passion is driven by a desire to prevent picky eating and help families find joy at the table together. Prior to launching Solid Starts, Jenny led global communications at One Acre Fund and Slow Food USA and served many years in the New York City government. Before that, she was a professional ballerina with the New York City Ballet. In this episode, Jenny shares the benefits of baby-led weaning and why it's important to incorporate it when feeding children. Parents and my own personal fear about choking and how to know the difference between choking and gagging and what movements to have baby practice to help keep them safe. We also discuss Jenny's best tips for different stages of picky eating, which now I feel so much more prepared for if slash when that stage comes. This was personally the most impactful episode for myself as a new mom. Jenny is so knowledgeable, but also such a realistic mom that's not going to have you do anything that makes any extra work for you. Let's listen in. Okay, Jenny, this is a very exciting day for me. And I should say my sister as well. She's obsessed with you. Um, but I'm so happy to have you on and for you to share your knowledge with all of our new moms, moms to be, and moms who have been there for, you know, a little bit now. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. So I'd love for you just to start off with telling our listeners a little bit more about your story and how you came to create solid starts. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's kind of a winding path, but the short story is that I, when I was a first time mom, I really had no idea what I was doing when it came to starting solids. I I think I just went to the grocery store and bought like a, a Gerber jar of whatever carrots or something and came home and tried feeding my baby and he hated it. And I was really deflated and thinking like, this isn't working the way it's supposed to be. Isn't he supposed to be excited and making a mess and all these things, you know, fast forward six months, he basically stopped eating altogether. I am not equipped at all to handle food refusal or anything of that like. Um, Doesn't touch his first birthday cake, you know, like I'm literally his first birthday. I'm crying in the, in the back, you know, room with my grandparents and everyone else out there thinking like, what's wrong here. There's something not right. Like this child does not like food and really is not eating at all. Um, so, you know, I kind of fell into infant feeding and, uh, learning about picky eating and how to reverse picky eating and how to prevent picky eating to the extent you can, um, with a lot of research when I got pregnant again, cause I was like, I cannot go through this again. It's too hard. It's too hard on our family. It's hard on our marriage. Like, you know, it's, it's a real thing and it, it's, and it's, 
it lasts a long time once it takes root. So um, I wanted to build a resource for parents to find alternatives to the traditional way of starting solids, which we now know is kind of coming into question. I wanted to create a food database where someone in any part of the world could look up any food and see how to introduce that to their baby. A lot of what's behind our story is a movement and a campaign back to what I would call quote unquote real food, right? So the idea, the very notion of baby food is kind of fraught. They don't actually need separate food from us. It's just that we have been marketed to as parents, our grandparents have been marketed to for about a century, um, uh, from, you know, very wealthy corporations convincing us that, you know, a stage one needs to happen and then stage two thickness of puree and then stage three and all that. It turns out none of that is true. And, um, you know, unfortunately, uh, I think like many things in the United States, we kind of take convenience food a little too far. There are a lot of wonderful things that happened with the advent of baby food. It was invented around 1920, 1930, and it, you know, liberated women from the kitchen in, in different ways. Um, and I love myself a good yogurt pouch on the way to swim class, but, um, you know, the longer your child is on textureless food and the longer you are actively putting that on a spoon and putting it into their mouth, the more at risk we are of um, running into severe picky eating. And that's pretty well documented. So I, once I learned all of this, that actually there are other ways you can go about introducing solids to your baby. There's ways to get to the family meal faster, ways to introduce, you know, standard table food of any culture faster I was really intrigued by that. So my twins were sort of our experiment for, for baby led weaning and, and all of this. And the experiment just like blew my mind. I mean, even from a couple of days in, I couldn't believe how happy they were comparing it to the initial where initial experience where I'm, you know, here comes the airplane, open your mouth and doing all these things that my grandmother probably did. Um, but it was, it was remarkable. So we are huge proponents of baby led weaning primarily because of the independent, uh, sort of component of that, letting the child take the spoon from you, letting the child reach for the food, decide what to put in their mouth and how much and when to stop. Um, you know, one thing that a lot of people don't think about is that when you've got this sort of pre-measured jar of baby food, it sets that parent up to believe that that child should eat that whole jar. And even that in of itself is kind of a problematic situation because you're kind of, well, we have one more bite, take one more bite, but baby might be full. And you can start to see how this can lead down a path of struggle with, you know, between parent and child. And that's certainly where I was. So my hope is to pass on the knowledge and to create a, you know, sort of first-class institution, a pediatric institution of medical associations and doctors, um, an infant swallowing specialist to really come together and say, you know, here are the alternatives you have, and here's a safe way to introduce real food to babies. No, oh, Jenny, it's amazing. And I am, I'm going to tout the app right now because for anyone listening that has not been on the Solid Starts app, it is amazing. I mean, I just love, it's like, you can 
not only can you just search by food, but you can search by nutrition rating. So if you're looking for like to introduce the most nutritious foods in the beginning, which is something that was really important to me, or I love the poop friendly rating. <laughs> That's probably one of my poop other is favorites. A really big well, issue at this you age. Constantly like, talk both about ways, poop. right? Like constipation and too much of it blowouts. So we had to do it. <laughs> I mean, the, I would say between my husband and I, most of our discussions about our son are, what was his poop like? Can you tell me, can you describe it to me? I was not there when you changed him specifically. Tell me what it looked like, what the shape was consistency. Did it smell really bad? I mean, and also I will say as a dietitian, it's like, I talk about poop all day, so it doesn't phase me at all, but I mean, it tells you what your gut health is doing. So yes, it's true. I love the poop friendly aspect. Um, (laughs) And it also, for anyone who hasn't been on it, it tells you how like the ways to serve different foods to your baby for their various age groups, which is so helpful. And, um, the best thing too, is it comes with videos. So you can watch other babies eating those foods and really identify with your own child. Um, cause it's really scary and we'll get into it. We're, you know, we'll start with baby led weaning, but like, I do have a lot of fears around it, especially being a new mom. And I think it is kind of like, I mean, I feel like everything is fear-based as a new mom. You're just like, what am I doing? Yeah. (laughs) What am I supposed to do? Um, Your sole purpose is to keep this human alive. (laughs) Yeah. And I think like, well, and it's funny, Jenny, because I feel like you were answering some of my questions, but I want to dive in a little bit deeper, but can we just start with what are the benefits of baby led weaning and why should we try to incorporate it into our feeding routine with our children. Yeah, for sure. Um, Well, first, I just want to say that I think the current sort of state of our society is very hung up on methods. And I want to give everyone who's listening, just give yourself some space and permission to let go of having to choose a particular path. Um, That is just a construct set up. You don't need to choose this way or that way. It doesn't have to be a binary uh, decision in that way. So you can kind of take the best of what you see and make your own little you know, stew with it and, and go your own way. So don't feel like you have to choose a certain thing. The other thing I will say before I get into the benefits of baby led weaning is that all babies need to learn how to self feed no matter what. And that is the goal. So baby led weaning puts that up front by, you know, skipping over the purees and the spoon feeding and handing baby uh, soft food for baby to self feed right away. So what we know is that the sooner that happens in an infant's starting solids trajectory, the more advanced they are in oral motor skills, um, cognitive uh, sort of reach and grab eye coordination, um, and the less likely it is that they will become a picky eater. Um, So there's some really strong benefits to the quote unquote method, but really it's just kind of nudging what you would normally be doing, you know, quote unquote, normally be doing around eight or nine months of age, two months earlier. Um, So it's not, you know, to me, when I think about it holistically, 
I kind of want to get away from the methods and this or that and choosing because this is something that all babies should be doing ideally around eight to nine months of age, no matter what, how you get there is kind of up to you. And we have a lot of parents who love combo feeding, which is a little bit of both. And I think that's a really nice kind of meet you where you are <laughs> bridge for, for most parents today. But the, the most, I mean, for me as a mom, when I look at how spoon feeding ended up for me and granted I did really like exclusive prolonged controlled spoon feeding. I didn't let Charlie grab the spoon. I didn't like, you know, I was really hanging onto that thing pretty tight. Um, compared to baby led weaning, it's, it's just joy. The babies that are trusted to pick what they want to put in their mouth are so much happier. And when we think about our long-term goals for our kids around the table, I think, you know, when we, when we talk to parents, we say, you know, what do you, what do you want out of this? Most of them will say almost exactly the same thing. They'll say that they want their child to be open to vegetables, to like nutritious foods and to like, you know, be willing to try something new at a restaurant or when you're traveling. Um, but the reality is, is that, the traditional way of starting solids is very far from that. In fact, it's the opposite. It's setting you up to say, well, actually your baby needs this completely separate food in the separate aisle in the separate shelf of the grocery store. And if you really kind of think about that, almost from a philosophical perspective, it sets you up thinking that baby has to have a separate meal, which ends up in a very tired mother making two meals into toddlerhood. And then the toddler gets a little more selective as they do their toddlers. And you start to wonder, well, how do I ever get from here to the family meal? And that's where we see a lot of problems. So I love baby led weaning because it puts the emphasis on share a little of what you're having with baby in a safe way. And it kind of collapses that timeline. The longer you exclusively spoon feed a child textureless food, and I'm talking like Vitamix blended or baby food, you know, maker blended food, that's a velvety puree. It has zero consistency to it. The longer you're doing that and the longer you're kind of clutching that spoon and really hanging onto it tightly and not letting baby take it from you, um, the farther away the family meal is getting, you know, in your, in your horizon. Right. So, um, I love that it brings families together from day one and incorporates baby at the table from day one, ideally, and you don't have to make a separate meal. There's no need to be like blending all this stuff and pouring it into ice cube trays and all this extra work. Literally baby can have some of what you're having for lunch. One of our feeding therapists on our team, we have a number of feeding therapists and infant swallowing specialists. And one of, um, Kim's favorite, uh, ways of answering the, the, what is the best first food question? Cause everyone always asks us that what's the very, very best first food. And she says, what you're having for dinner that night. And it like, it's mind blowing, right? Like we're almost not ready to hear that and to absorb it. But I love that answer because that's what it was like before baby food was invented. It, you know, you can't imagine a mom of five tending to a farm back then being like, let me just make up, whip up this separate meal for you. <laughs> no, baby was probably having a scoop of mashed potatoes or sucking on the steak or even eating some pre-chewed food um, from, from the parent's mouth. And so, you know, I think that we are, we're starting to question our history a little bit around 
baby food, the invention of baby food, the marketing of baby food. It is now a $70 billion industry. It is massive. There is so much money to be made in baby food, but the reality is it's actually not necessary. Yeah, no, it's, it's so interesting. And I am, I'm, you know, I shared with you, Jenny, but my son is about seven and a half months old and I've been on this teetering of like, we've done some baby led weaning and I'll tell you like kind of my experience and what's maybe not kind of go like full blown. And then really why he gets purees is one, like, and I may be, you know, the, the anomaly of the mom that like, I, I actually enjoy making him different foods. Cause I make Aww. weird concoctions and things yeah. like he eats liver puree. And it's like, I will not touch awesome. that. So it's like, <laughs> that will not be part of the family meal. Um, but I think selfishly too, I enjoy, and it's, I only have one child now. Like everyone's yeah. like, once you have two, you really like when you <laughs> just put food on the tray and walk away. It is um, true. There's a lot of, it's like, I love, I love like just feeding him right now. Yeah. And he's like all into it. And he feeds, like he does take the spoon and feeds himself and he gets so excited yeah. when he gets to do that. So it's like, yeah. it, it totally plays to what you're saying. But my biggest fear is uh, choking. Yeah, like, of course we have, we have the life back. We are prepared if, well, hopefully prepared if something were to happen, but yeah. I know, you know, there is a difference between gagging and choking and I can yeah. read about it till no end. Mm-hmm. I still have the fear and I still don't fully understand. Like if my child's going through it, wait, is that choking? Is that, or I just feel like I have to watch him like a hawk. And I'm like, yeah. is this more you know, just again, it's selfish. I'm like, is this more fun for me than feeding him mm-hmm. or letting him eat with the spoon or like watching with all this anxiety, which again, first child syndrome yeah. too. Yeah. Completely. But I'm curious, like, can you just explain for our listeners and to me, um, your best way of explaining like the difference between gagging and choking and to kind of like get over that hurdle of fear. Yes, yes, for sure. And also like your fears are totally valid. Um, you know, it is, it is hard to watch and it's hard to let go. I think motherhood generally is like a long process of letting go. <laughs> That's old. They give you 18 years to do it. That's how hard it is. <laughs> Um, so listen, I'm going to, I'm going to answer your question. I'm also going to give you a little gentle kick in the pants because um, the reality is, is that, um, the risk of choking actually increases more in toddlerhood than it does in infancy. Mm -hmm. Your, your baby, your six to 12 month, six to 11 month old baby's protective reflexes are at their most sensitive, their most easily triggered, their most powerful right now, which makes it a great time to learn. So our swallowing specialists are actually far more worried about the 12 month old who's never had, uh, you know, chewable food and who is now mobile, who's now laughing at the table, rocking around in the high chair, throwing, you know, trying to move it around, trying to get out of the high chair, grabbing a snack off the counter and running away. We are far more worried about the toddler who hasn't had enough exposure to finger food than the six month old with a piece of steak. 
um, because though the gag reflex, the, all of the reflexes that young babies have, tongue lingering tongue thrust reflex, they all kind of work together in this beautiful way to really protect from choking. It is harder for a six month old baby to choke than it is for a 12 month old baby. And here's a visual that I can give you. So for you and I to gag on something, it's like this really kind of visceral experience. It feels awful. You might feel a little vomit come up, um, but that's triggered pretty far back in our throat, like food or whatever would have to get pretty far back to elicit that kind of retching motion, right? For your seven-month-old or your six-month-old baby, that reflex is actually located in the first like third of the tongue right here. So anything that kind of crosses over that part or is just kind of sitting there is going to make a baby gag. So first of all, like we actually want babies learning how to self-feed when that reflex is easily triggered because it's a perfect learning ground for mistakes, right? The body is like, okay, we're ready. We are protecting this baby. And it's not that the gag reflex is not protective after 12 months of age. It's just that it's triggered further back in the mouth. So food has to get further back to, um, to, you know, set that off. So that's an important thing to keep in mind. The longer you kind of kick the can, the more you kick the can down the road on introducing table food, um, the more you're actually doing yourself a disservice. And I hate to say that because I know it's like, you're super scared. You're like, I'm just going to wait till age one. I'm just going to wait till 13 months. I'm just going to wait till 14 months. It's like waning, right? Like I'm just going to wait a little bit longer. Um, but that actually is counterproductive to, from a safety perspective. So the optimal period of time for a baby to learn to work with finger food and self-feeding is actually, um, six to nine months of age. Um, but if you're starting at nine months, that's fine too. It's better than 12. And if you're starting at 12 months, we've got, we've got ideas for you there to help do it safely. Um, but I want to refute this notion that with age comes safety, because that is absolutely not true. And, and you'll experience that in a lot of things with toddlerhood, right? Like they're going to fly down the stairs thinking they can fly. They're going to try to skip stairs. They're going to go head first down the slide. You know, all these things start happening. Like their judgment is not super <laughs> at age two <laughs> or even age one. So you gotta be really careful because they're just kind of crazy and they're running a lot. Um, your child is more like likely to fall out of their high chair and end up in the emergency room for that because the parent wasn't using the straps and they are to choke. Um, so like really let's talk about how rare this is. Choking is extremely rare because the body is set up to protect it. Now here's the difference between gagging and choking. First of all, they're opposites. Gagging is not choking and gagging does not lead to choking. I'm going to say that again, because I know it looks like baby might be choking. Gagging does not lead to choking. In fact, there is this beautiful thing that happens during the gag. You can tell I've been around swallowing specialists too long now. <laughs> so we have a food tube and an air tube. Your baby has a food tube, right? So the food tube is the esophagus and the air tube is your windpipe that goes to your lungs, right? For baby to choke, food has to go down the wrong pipe. So it has to kind of have like a miscoordination of the swallow and go down the windpipe and then actually get stuck there with a cough not being strong enough to get it out, um, you know, or any kind of um, any re other reflexes that would that would kick in. But during the gag, the body closes off the air tube entirely. 
So not only is gagging not choking and gagging does not lead to choking, baby cannot choke during a gag because the body closes off the airway to protect it. Conveniently, while your baby is swallowing and while you are swallowing, the body also covers the airway to protect it. So, you know, you've got these two tubes and every time your brain is going, okay, I'm chewing, I'm chewing, I'm going to move this food back in my mouth. It goes, I'm going to close off the airway, um, which is why you can't breathe and swallow at the same time. So the body really is designed to protect it. We have some animations, some video animations of this coming to our website soon um, uh, that I think will be really reassuring for parents. It's like, oh, wow, actually, it is actually kind of hard for for a baby to choke, but they do. And so let's just quickly talk about, well, then how do babies choke? If it's so hard for them to choke, Jenny, tell me how this actually happens. Typically it's in toddlerhood. Typically the child is moving around, taking a snack, taking a pretzel, taking a chip, taking a whatever marshmallow they found off the floor. Um, And often it's not even food. Often it's the AAA batteries. It's the watch from your battery. It's the rubber from the bottom of your shoe. Um, Things, you know, objects, right? Small round objects, marbles would be a really dangerous thing to have lying around if you have an older child. Um, But it's, you know, for a baby to get an object that size in their mouth, first, they have to be able to pick up they have to have that pincer grasp with their fingers, their thumb and their pointer finger to touch, be able to pick up really small pieces of, you know, objects or food and actually accurately put that in their mouth. Um, But, you know, it's the motion of things, the environment not being a sort of prime safe eating environment that really increases the risk. You know, we have a ton of diagrams for how to cut food for how to cut apple for a six month old versus a nine month old versus an 18 month old versus a 36 month old. And we will keep producing those because it's what everyone wants. The secret is, is the environment is actually more important than the shape or size or, you know, consistency of the food. Because if baby is in a reclined position or not upright or just moving around, the brain is more likely to kind of have a miscoordination of the swallow and that airway won't be protected when um, the food goes down. So often what we see in the emergency room data which we regularly analyze is that um, there was like something that shouldn't be in the mouth in the first place, like a pistachio shell, um, a AAA battery, things like that. And the child was mobile um, and moving around. I mean, honestly, Jenny, that was so helpful (laughs) just for myself too. It really, it brought my fear down and I wasn't aware that it's much harder for younger babies to joke. Like it's really toddlers that you want to pay attention to. Yeah. They get Um, ambitious too. You'll start to see your seven month old about when they turn 10 months old, going to start putting palmfuls of food in their mouth. And you're going to be like, wait, that's too much. And they're like, I am not stopping mom. (laughs) They get really, you know, eager and ambitious. So it's another reason why we want to practice some of those skills before the speed of eating kind of picks up and the hunger too, because they're starting to wean after one year of age too. So we want to make sure that they're actually able to chew chewable food and get that into the belly and, um, you know, be less reliant on their bottle or, or breast. Yeah, no, it's so interesting. And I, I just noticed you guys just had a reel come out 
on your Instagram, I was talking about preventing, um, choking. Mm-hmm. And I also didn't know that you weren't supposed to put, I mean, I understand like you don't want to put your finger in to have it pushed down, but yeah. can we talk a little bit about why yes. you shouldn't put your finger in baby's mouth? Cause that's like immediately what my husband will go for. Cause it's just your, it's your knee jerk reaction. It's sure. like, there's I got to get that out of there I need to get it out. Yeah. Um, so there's two components to that, right? So what, Anytime a parent or caregiver is putting their finger or placing food in the child's mouth, like finger food, right? Like if you take a small cube of potato and you place that on your child's tongue, you are increasing the risk of choking. Here's why the brain is not ready for that. And imagine your partner putting food in your mouth. You might actually kind of go back and lean away from them because it's like, wait, I'm not ready for that. There is a really important part of eating, which is the eyes see the food or the brain cognitively decides I'm going to pick up that food. I see it. I'm going to pick it up. I'm going to bring it to my mouth. That first step is a massive part of feeding safety, no matter what age you are, whether you're six month old or 99 years old. Um, And that early part of that cognition, that decision to, to eat is what prepares the brain to get the reflexes ready, the chewing reflexes, the swallowing, and to coordinate the swallow. Remember, choking is a failure of a coordinated swallow. It is not because you cut the food the wrong way. It, and honestly, you know, even a huge grape uh, is not a choking hazard for an infant because it's too darn big, truthfully. It's too big to even get lodged in their airway. Um, so, you know, we have to shift our orientation to it's about this perfect, perfectly cut food to a safe environment, which includes caregivers keeping their fingers out of the child's mouth. So your child takes too big of a bite, has too much food, dad's lunging in to finger swipe it out. I want you to stay calm and pause and give your baby time to work it forward. They have a few things going for them in this moment. One, first of all, you don't want to scare them. Anytime you're kind of coming at your child and putting your fingers near their face, imagine if that was happening to you. It it starts to confuse the body. What's happening here? I don't want, what am I supposed to do? Get your hand out of your, my mouth. And and that can lead to choking because it's a miscoordination of what's happening in the mouth or what's supposed to happen in the mouth. Um, but also it's a really negative experience for baby. And we often see babies who have parents who do that finger swiping too much, um, start to resist even going into the high chair, will cry and arch their back and all of that because they've just developed a negative association with the feeding experience um, because it feels invasive to them. So putting those two aside for the moment, when baby has too much food in the mouth and you're like feeling that urge, Oh, I'm going to go get that. I can see it. I know I won't push it back further. I can see it. I'm just going to pull it out. You're, you don't need to do it for two reasons. One, baby's gag reflex has your back. If that food gets too far back and it's not chewed well enough, your the baby's body is going to retch it forward. Um, and that might be in the form of vomiting. It might be in the form of just a really basic gag. And sometimes babies aren't bothered by this at all, especially the younger babies. In fact, gagging bothers toddlers typically more than it bothers younger infants, which is another reason we like to start finger food early to kind of work through that period so that they're not bothered by it at age one and, you know, starting to resist the table because they're afraid they might gag or something like that. Um, So baby's gag reflex really has your back. But the other thing is that your child needs to learn how to spit. We don't talk about these things when your child, when your 18 month old picks up a marble 
at the playground. I want that toddler to know this isn't food. This doesn't feel right. I'm going to spit this out. If you don't actively teach your child how to spit, I guarantee you they'll try to swallow. Um, and you can actually safely swallow a marble, by the way, <laughs> you know, if, as long as you're still in your, you know, not running around and the brain's not confused, you probably just poop it right out. Um, but, uh, the point I have here is that spitting is a skill that we need to teach our babies early and often until it becomes routine. One of the benefits of really large pieces of finger food, and we love to say like resistive sticks of food, things that your child can't bite through, like a mango pit, like the seed of a mango or corn on the cob, or even a chicken drumstick, dare I say, is that baby can reach in and pull it out. Mm. And if it's really big enough, the piece of food in their mouth, baby can spit that out. So really try not to stick your fingers in your child's mouth. Know that every time you do, you are absolutely increasing the risk. There was only one time, there's only sort of one scenario in which we would like go on record saying, yes, stick your finger, you know, help child. And that is if they have sucked like food so hard that it's gotten stuck to the roof of their mouth, mm. which happens sometimes. Yeah. Um, remember my daughter, 80, just like went at a piece of chicken for like 20 minutes. And I must not have been paying close enough attention because it was like, a shield on the roof of her mouth. And there was no way she could get it out. And I knew that if I kind of scratched it forward, I could loosen it. And so, you know, I did, I did go in there and do that. So trust your gut, but also know that sometimes it's safer to override that gut feeling. And, yeah. you know, look, gagging is not an emergency. Having too big of a piece of food in baby's mouth is also not an emergency. It is an opportunity to coach your child to spit first step. And if that doesn't happen, the gag reflex will have your back. So when you've got that situation, I want you to stick out your own tongue and put your an, a hand below your chin and go, ah, and show baby. Mm. If you stick your tongue out, the food will fall out. They don't know that they need to learn that. So another thing you can do is to kneel, um, be beneath their high chair. You don't want to hover above them because then they'll look up at you and that gravity will pull the food yeah. back. But if you get below them and kind of tilt them forward gently with one of your hands, put the other hand under their chin, and then you make that tongue motion, blah, they um, will start to learn to spit it out. So um, spitting is a life skill and probably more important than that life fact you've got in your closet. <laughs> oh my gosh. I know. I was like, once we had a baby, my husband's like, we need to order the life back. And then ask me like every week, have we ordered it? I'm like, he's yeah. just drinking breast milk. Right now. <laughs> but no, it's Jenny, always, that's the, so it's always the husbands. They're always the one who are the I most know. nervous at the table. <laughs> I, well, that's honestly, I'm going to make him listen to this recording even, sorry, maybe even before it airs everyone. Um, but that's so, like, I didn't even know I should be teaching him how to spit. So yeah. Amazing. If you're listening to this episode, you're already taking steps to ensure the health of you and your baby. And part of taking care of yourself might be taking a prenatal vitamin. Unfortunately, most prenatal vitamins do not contain sufficient amounts of DHA. An omega-3 fatty acid that is essential during pregnancy and the postpartum period for your baby's brain and nervous system development, and to support a healthy pregnancy, mood, and immunity for mom. Given that pregnant women are advised to limit their consumption of fish, taking a high-quality omega fish oil supplement like Nordic Naturals Prenatal DHA is often the best way to ensure your baby is getting beneficial omega-3s for growth and development. 
And we didn't forget about our vegan mamas. We offer a vegan prenatal DHA made from sustainable microalgae. Head to nordic.com and use the code naturallywell15 for 15% off one of our prenatal DHAs. Um, I want to shift gears, Jenny, to picky eaters because I know we have mm. a lot of listeners really interested in this topic. Um, and for everyone listening, we're going to be talking about rather than like preventing picky eaters, which Jenny already touched on, you have a picky eater and like what we can do about that. So I know one question. I got from a lot of parents and my sister struggled with her toddler is that shift where like, maybe they were eating proteins and all of a sudden they're on the protein boycott. Mm. Is there anything we can do there to try to get them to maybe go back to eating? And I'm, you know, like I would say specific protein sources, like if they were eating chicken before or eggs or what can we do there? If if anything, picky eating is a really complex topic. And first I want to separate out what is actually quote unquote picky eating versus just run of the mill toddler selectiveness, because we don't want to label the kids as picky eaters. We don't want to kind of start doing picky eater tactics on toddlers who are just frankly being toddlers. So it's important to kind of know what makes Uh, picky eating, picky eating. I would say that if your child is routinely refusing to eat, crying at the table, crying because they have to go to the table, um, kind of like only eating a handful of foods. Like if you have a list of 10 foods in your mind and that's all that your child will eat, that is something we would consider picky eating. If your child is eating kind of mostly what you're serving, but like just stopped eating chicken for the couple of weeks, that is not picky eating. It's just honestly, your toddler figuring out that chicken takes a lot of chewing and they're just like, I don't have the energy or the time for this. And so I'm just not going to deal with this. And it's easier. We are wired as humans to go after easy calories. And you see that I'm sure a lot in your work too, where, you know, it's like you put chocolate milk versus, you know, we're just, we're going to pick the sweet thing that gives us a boost of energy. Um, so, you know, babies and toddlers are no, are no different in that way. So it's really common for toddlers to kind of give up meat or things that are more challenging to chew because they just don't have the time for it. They've got running to do and playing to do, and they're going to go after those easy calories. So first don't panic. Don't label your child a picky eater. Don't start obsessing over trying to get them to eat chicken. Don't encourage it. Don't ask them if they want to try it. Just like feign indifference, fake it until you make it and pretend that you are a thousand percent okay with that decision. Oh, you're not interested in chicken tonight. Okay. Well, there'll be breakfast in the morning dinner's over now. Bye. Like seriously, that's basically the face you have to put on because anything else will devolve into a battle at the table, which we really don't want. What happens typically with picky eating? Picky eating isn't something that's set from birth. There's a very, very small percentage of kids who will end up picky eaters no matter what the parent does, but it's, it has more to do with, um, 
Oh, how do you describe it? It's like, have you ever met someone who's like, did you move the couch an inch? I think you moved the couch an inch. Like they're a little bit more resistive to change, um, a little more sensitive, sensory wise, might get like jolted more easily if a car backfires, you know, that kind of thing. Um, And it plays out in different ways, but that's the best way I can describe it. They're a little more rigid in their personalities, or there's actually like a neurological um, or genetic thing going on there. That's a really small percentage of the population, the majority of picky eaters, um, sort of like there's this, this path where the parent is like, they stopped eating chicken. Oh my God. They're not eating protein. They're not going to grow. They've fallen off the charts. And uh, are you sure you don't want some chicken? Here's chicken two different ways. Here's chicken. Let's have some chicken tonight. And then like the child's like, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm never eating chicken again because you act crazy when there's chicken on the table. And by the way, it tastes doesn't taste good and I don't want to eat it and I don't want to put the work in. So shrug, but the parent freaks out because they're not eating the healthy protein or this or that. And it spirals down. So I wanted to just emphasize that because a lot of, for those of you who have a one-year-old, for example, you have this beautiful window right now to let go of your worries. And I know it's going to like pull at your heart and feel like you're not being the best mom or the best dad, but like it is better to kind of feign indifference and be a thousand percent okay with your child not eating than to slide into this like nudging, encouraging, pressuring, or hovering, watching what they're eating, counting the bites, all of those things. What we often see too, Kate, is that the parent will get nervous that the child didn't eat dinner. And then they start offering them a snack before bedtime. And then the child doesn't wake up hungry for breakfast and skips breakfast. And they said, offer them an earlier snack in the morning. And before you know it, the meals are gone. The meals are all refused and they're living on snacks. And the parent starts panicking because their child is losing a little bit of weight. And so they offer another snack or in more frequency or of more junk food or more convenience food that they know the child will eat. And you start to see how this really easily spirals down. It all starts with that decision to be okay with your child not eating. That is not your place to force or to push. We have to kind of accept that that division of responsibility, right? So your child's decision is what to put in their mouth from what you've served and how much, or if they eat at all, that's their decision to make. From the start, from the start, your job is the schedule. Okay. We're going to have breakfast at eight and snack at nine 30, right. And keep to that schedule, whatever schedule works for you and what you're serving beyond that, you've got to let go. So now let's go back to the chicken. Your toddlers stopped eating chicken. They used to love chicken. You were, oh, it's such a great protein source. I'm so happy now that they're not eating any protein. First, I would pull chicken off the menu for a couple of weeks. Let it go for yourself too. Like just back away for a little bit. Often we serve foods that we know are super healthy for toddlers and babies too much. We're like, oh, yay, they love eggs. Eggs are affordable. They're accessible. They're loaded in protein. And suddenly the child's having eggs four times a week. And it's not surprising after a couple months of that, they're like, I don't think I'm ever going to eat eggs ever again, which a lot of kids do. So if you have, 
those like foods that are really important to you for health reasons or just your family kind of food culture, something that you like to have once a week at dinner. I don't want you to serve those very often because I don't want your child tiring of them. Um, back to the chicken, we've got to make it fun. So let's say you've taken a two week break from the chicken and now we're going to bring it back. If your child's a toddler, which I'm assuming they are um, at this point, if they're stopping to eat chicken, because most babies will eat almost anything up until about 12 months of age, right? If you've got a toddler who's now just like rejecting what used to be a favorite food or uh, a protein, it's often protein or vegetables, we've got to make it resistible. We've got to make it irresistible. We've got to make it completely delicious. So we can't just be boiling green beans and expecting our kids to eat boiled green beans because it's not that tasty. So we're going to put a little butter on it. We're going to put, dare I say, a tiny sprinkle of salt. Like we're going to make it delicious. And then we're going to make it fun. Can we cut it in a different shape than it's been before? Could your child use the scissors to help you cut the green beans? Um, could we put some food picks in the chicken and have it stand up and see if we can make kebabs? Um, you know, like with, with toddlers, you can almost, almost any activity can get them to taste a, a food if it's truly an activity and there's no pressure on them to taste it. So I think if you've got a food refusal situation going on, take a break from it, step back for a little bit, and then find a way to make it fun. And maybe not even around mealtime where there's no pressure of the table, right? Like maybe you're preparing chicken together with a toddler training knife. We love those silicone, um, or I'm not sure if they're silicone or plastic, but like toddler trainer knives are fantastic for getting toddlers to eat vegetables. If you give them a little cutting board and something that's relatively easy to cut and do that before dinner time when they're a little bit hungry, you'll see kids eat raw kale, cucumbers, like all the green veggies, bell peppers, you name it, because they're, you know, it's the end of the day, they're a little bit hungry for dinner, they're ready to eat, but it's an activity. So mm -hmm. our feeding therapists are really big on one, removing all the pressure because no activity is going to be fun if there's pressure, right? So strip away all the pressure from the moment. Um, we're not even going to eat this chicken, Sally. We're just going to chop it. In fact, nope, don't, don't, I saw you taste it. Don't taste it. Don't taste it. We're just cutting right now. So like a little reverse psychology, a little like boundary of being okay that your child's not eating that particular thing. And a little bit of fun can go a long way. Yeah, no, you know what? It just reminded me, Jenny, my friend, um, Abby with her son will have him with the asparagus. He breaks off the ends. Yeah. She's prepping it. And she posted yeah. it on her story the other day. And I'm like, that is genius. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm curious, do you find if mom or parent is making a separate meal for their toddler separate from their own meal and they just continue to do it, does it make them just pickier and pickier typically? You know, it's I mean, it, it kind of like on, if you're on that on path what you're, right now. It depends on what you're cooking, right? I mean, you, yeah. you could be making gourmet separate meals of salads and things. And your child might be eating that. Um, look, I, you know, this is what I'm going to say. We all have our short game days and our long game days. Our long game is like, we want ch our child to be an adventurous eater, to eat healthy foods, to eat the foods that you lovingly prepare for them and to not scream for a McDonald's hamburger when they're in Italy. Right? Like that is sort of the long game goal work to that when you have the wherewithal, the energy, the money, the situation to do it. 
We have short game days. I have goldfish days. I have goldfish days. I have macaroni and cheese, goldfish, hot dog days for sure, because this is hard. This is hard. And, you know, add a pandemic into that and all the other stuff that's happening in the world. Like it's okay to have a short game day. Just try to have the scales kind of tip more on the long game than in the short game. And you should be fine. When it comes to separate meals, I, I guess I just kind of go back to, you know, honestly, a motherhood sustainability thing. You might enjoy it now. It's not sustainable. I will tell you four years down, I'm four years ahead of you on this. I will tell you it's not sustainable. Um, and there is this thing that happens like my, my child who struggles with picky eating, Charlie, is so used to getting something separate. He will actually demand it. And like, he uses that card now. He's like, well, I usually get something different and I don't like tonight's dinner. This is the worst dinner ever. And, you know, it's all this drama because he is used to me catering to him. And so it, I would say it doesn't make for a picky eater, but it pushes off that long game goal of eating the family meal, eating the same food a bit further away. And it tells the child that they're supposed to have something different than the adults, which they internalize. And I think that's a real thing. Yeah. I'm curious because, you know, my sister and I were just having this conversation about, so her three and a half year old is really on like the pasta butter yeah, and the toast with hummus. That's like pretty much all she'll eat right now. She won't even eat like, you know, the chickpea pasta anymore. She can tell a difference. Totally. Um, And so we were just actually talking about taking like some extra, like taking vitamins because she Mm -hmm. is, she's concerned. She's like, is she getting everything she should? Yeah. Do you feel like, and this, I just think of it as like maybe putting some moms at ease with that letting go. Mm -hmm. Do you think some kids who are more picky or have like only that like list of 10 foods they're eating, is it advantageous to make sure, I mean, I know we recommend most toddlers are on a multivitamin, things like that, but should that help ease parents' minds? Uh, yes, it doesn't solve the issue. It doesn't solve the problem, but you know, if your doctor is suggesting a multivitamin, like do the multivitamin, um, you know, it's it's sort of the same. If if it puts the parents at ease, like by all means do it, but we all know that a vitamin isn't going to keep you on the growth chart (laughs) because that requires fat and protein, right. And calcium, like, so like a a vitamin alone isn't going to deliver. It's it's called a supplement for a reason. Exactly. (laughs) It's not going to be the only thing that gets you there, but if it helps you relax and not intervene or put pressure on the child to eat by all means, do it. And just talk to your doctor about what the right vitamin or dosage, you know, um, uh, is of that. I think that what, what we have to recognize is that when we start getting worried, we pull that into a downward spiral. Our, our children can tell when we feel anxious, we don't even have to speak. They know. So that's why I love this phrase, feign indifference, because believe you, me, there are times when I have had to like put a smile on. I'm like, okay, you don't want dinner. You didn't eat lunch or breakfast today. I want to scream. I want to cry. I want to like, and I, you know, I put my Stepford face on and I, okay, there'll be more in the morning. 
gulp. I walk away after bedtime, I have it out. Right. And, and sometimes we need to do that. The more we're letting our anxiety show, the more we're pressuring, encouraging, prodding our children to take another bite, to taste something. Ah, but you asked for chicken nuggets. How come you're not eating the chicken nuggets out? You asked me for them. The more you're engaging in that kind of dialogue, the worse you're making it. Remember that two, three, four, five, six, seven-year-olds would rather be right than full. They'd rather go hungry and be right than like literally would actually rather go to bed hungry. I don't know. I'm I'm stuttering here, but like, do you know what I'm saying? Like they're, they're so convicted in their ways and the, they, they're pushing boundaries, testing your boundaries, trying to figure out where the power dynamic is. So in that, in that case, reverse psychology can actually work really well. Oh yeah. I didn't think you wanted any of those chicken nuggets. So I didn't put any in your plate and the chicken nuggets are on the end of the table. Most children will go help themselves to chicken nuggets. So again, but it's like that the parent has to back off. We have to like, we have to like help ourselves first before we can help our child. Put your, put your oxygen mask on first before helping your child. (laughs) No, that's such a, that's such a good thing to remember too. It's almost like you should have it like taped up on your fridge. Like your child would rather be right mm-hmm. <laughs> than full. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Jenny, this is like one, so helpful for me, but I can't imagine how helpful for our listeners. And unfortunately we have to wrap up because I could ask you so many more questions. <laughs> um, but the great thing is I will say the solid starts Instagram and app really, you guys do such a great job of, I feel like addressing most people's questions and in a fun way too. Like who doesn't love watching children eat? (laughs) I know it's so much fun. Um, And our website has everything you need from courses on reversing picky eating, where you can see this in a video real time to, um, to dealing with toddler high chair transitions and kids trying to jump out of their chairs. Everything is in a guide or a course or free on our website. So uh, definitely have a look there and we'll give your sister access to that, that reverse picky course. (laughs) Thank you. Oh my gosh. I know she's like, she's really holding on right now. And she has a one-year-old, so it's, yeah, it's, she's in it. Yeah. Um, but before we go, Jenny, we do always do a little rapid fire Q and a, so I have three questions for you. That first thing that comes to mind, what is your favorite de-stressing practice or tool? It's going to sound really lame, but just getting outside and going for a walk two years and with the pandemic, I was inside in New York city here with three kids under the age of three for 98 days. We were so afraid to walk outside because you're supposed to stay six feet away, which you cannot do on a New York city sidewalk. And me with three kids running in three different directions, it just felt unsafe. And so the longer it went on, we kind of just got lazy and started staying inside. And so just stepping outside, oh, it's the best right now. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And like the mental clarity you get as well. Um, coffee or tea? Coffee. You Americano. <laughs> Americano with whole milk. Don't mess Love with it. it. <laughs> um, favorite home cooked meal? Pasta bolognese, which I make in huge batches and freeze in jars. And then every Monday is our pasta night. And it's like, I've got like eight Mondays of dinners already made. I make the sauce in these big, big, uh, kind of soup vats. And then I freeze them in jars and then I just pull one out the Sunday night before. And it's oh like, gosh. yes, Monday is taken care of. 
I feel like Jenny. I don't know so if I love moms. it because it's so easy for me now, yeah. or if it's just the taste, but like it is the best night. Oh, it sounds so good. And I feel like so many moms after this are going to be like, Ooh, I should probably start doing that. And they're probably like, Ooh, pasta night. Yeah. <laughs> Recipes oh, on our website. <laughs> oh, good to know. Well, Jenny, thank you so much. And it was so great getting to know you as well. Um, this really has been probably one of the most helpful recordings personally for myself. Um, and I know all of our listeners will take in all this I'm information. I'm so glad. Thank you for having us. Oh, awesome. Jenny. That was so yeah, great. Super and I fun. Hope, Sorry. I know, I'm I a bit long winded. I need to like, Oh, figure no, out how not, to wrap honestly, it up more quickly. <laughs> not at all. I really didn't think you weren't, there was, I'm glad sometimes when people go a little bit further mm. because then other topics come up or like yeah. tiny little tidbits that honestly, Jenny, you're used to talking about this every day. Yeah. So sometimes like it can be fatigue for you and your brain, like, oh, why did I say that? And then for me, I'm like, tell me more. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that sounds great. Yeah, so for sure. I don't, I don't want to take up more of your time though. Cause I know we only said an hour, but, um, I really do appreciate it. We will be sending, I think, Andrew, when do we have it right now set to launch or to say, um, but we will Jenny, once the podcast is up, we'll send you an audiogram that you guys can use for social. It'll probably be a quick videogram, um, and then links, but they can listen to it anywhere. Um, you can listen to podcasts. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you both so much. And thanks for the tutorial, Andrew. All right. Take care. Bye, Jenny. Bye-bye. Depending on what stage your child currently is in, I encourage you to try at least one of Jenny's tips. For me, that was incorporating more baby led weaning and adding in more foods that Connor can feed himself. And I have to say my fear of choking has gone down drastically in just a few days, watching how well he can handle these foods. The Solid Starts app has been so helpful when it comes to knowing how I should cut and prepare each food. And reminder, it's free. Thank you for listening to Naturally Well by Nordic Naturals. And remember, you can catch some of our episodes of the podcast on our Naturally Well YouTube channel. If you want to know more about me, you can follow me on Instagram at livewellwithkate, where I typically live on my stories, providing a variety of daily health and wellness tips. Naturally Well is hosted by myself, Kate Turner, and produced by Andrew Steven. If you have any questions, please send us an email at podcast at nordicnaturals.com, and we hope to answer your question on air. If you like this show, please tell a friend, share an episode, and leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.